This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Between 2020 and 2022, I spent a lot of time reading about ventilators. So did a lot of the country. The New Yorker published dozens of stories about them in its Coronavirus Chronicles, talking about everything from a serious shortage in ventilators around the country to new technologies available that might help save lives by helping victims of the virus breathe. From the pandemic that started in March of 2020 to the wildfires in California in August of that same year that made it difficult to take the outside air. I've spent a lot of time over the last few years thinking about breathing, that simple and essential activity that we'll do, mostly unconsciously throughout our lives, and how that activity of breathing is at this moment in history connected to technology. That's why I wanted to talk to Arika Savakaita, an acute care nurse practitioner and medical professional at the University of Chicago, who has spent her entire career providing top quality patient care and advocating for the use of helmet-based ventilation to improve healthcare outcomes. Arika is a recognized expert in non-invasive ventilation via the helmet interface and has garnered widespread respect within the medical community for her passionate work in this area. In 2014, she was involved in a successful three-year trial study at the University of Chicago Medical Center that tested the effectiveness of helmet-based ventilation in the ICU. Drawing on this experience, she authored a capstone paper on non-invasive positive pressure ventilation for the treatment of acute respiratory failure in immunocompromised patients, which has been instrumental in raising awareness about the benefits of this technology. In March of 2020, Arica founded HelmetBasedVentilation.com, a website that has become a valuable resource for medical professionals seeking to learn more about the benefits of helmets and their use in treating patients with respiratory distress. Arica continues to actively manage the website and update it with the latest research and information about helmet-based ventilation. Today, Arica is dedicated to educating clinicians about the use of helmet-based ventilation, and she believes that the evidence-based information she provides can help save lives, shorten ICU stays, lower the workload for medical staff, and improve overall healthcare outcomes. Her goal is to promote the use of this technology in both ICU and non-ICU settings, and help to make it more widely available to those who need it. Hi, Erica. Hi, Deb. So, Erica, I wanted to talk to you about your particular and specific in- invention and the uh, work that you've done around popularizing this particular invention, which has to do with non-invasive helmet ventilation for hospital use. But before we go into the particulars of that technology, I wanted to ask a broader question about the relationship between technology and healthcare, particularly in the context of nursing, which is your purview. How has technological innovation changed what it means to care, broadly speaking, or the work of care, and specifically nursing? Very good question, and thank you for putting out there the nursing workflow, because I can tell you that 24-7 nurses spend with their patients. Where a physician comes and goes, Nurses are always there with the patient, and uh, the workflow is absolutely critical. And from what what I can say that in the ICU settings, it's uh, even vital. So for us, technology 
saves the time, saves our steps, which is also very important so we can perform at our best. And also it alerts about anything that is happening with the patient. So we can prevent for some issues to rise up or prevent for some terrible accidents to happen. In a medical ICU, I worked in 2005 at University of Chicago Medicine. And uh, I can tell you that every time we would get a new technology in our unit was always a joy for us because we could see how all the medical engineers really care about our time and how can we simplify our care and optimize the care for the patient. So we can talk about the ventilators, about the IV pumps, about just the simple devices that we use to access patient vein and put the catheters in to give the transfusions and also the monitoring devices that are out there. But today I wanna to talk more about breathing. In a medical ICU where we work, we get a lot of patients who have a lot of issues with their breathing. And sometimes it can be just a lack of oxygen that we are receiving, but most of the time, it's not just that. It's also just taking the breath in and out. And it is very hard to watch someone who is struggling to take that breath. So we are there always to help. And there are so many different devices that we can apply. And we usually try them all to find the best fit for that patient. So again, the technology is very important, but it's very important to remember that you wanted to technology be very adaptable, right? To the patient and not vice versa. We don't wanna make a device that is perfect for that perfect face, for that perfect person, right? We wanted to have a device that can fit everyone, no matter how old you are, no matter what size you are, and uh, no matter what facial features you have. So this is what really makes our life easier and a unit for, for the nurses. I wanted to pick up on what you're saying here because I think it's so important. This is something I think about a lot of the time when I think about the uh, ethics of technology, which is the diversity of what humans look like and what humans need. Why do you think that ventilation in particular is so kind of uh, critically attached to and maybe changed by questions of who the particular patient is who is in need of ventilation. What are the particulars of ventilation that maybe make it critical for us to think about diversity and uh, thinking about adaptive design that can fit a broad swath or a diversity of human bodies when and human needs, I should say, not just human bodies, because of course, you're talking about facial features and, and face shapes and head shapes, et cetera, and maybe uh, different body types as well, and, and the ways that those things change metabolism and the way that those things um, change uh, what it means to breathe and what breathing looks like. But I'm also thinking about like the specifics of a patient's uh, illness and their particular needs and their particular medical trajectories or health trajectories. So can you say a little bit about the relationship between kind of thinking inclusively and in terms of diversity, in terms of technological production in the specific terms of ventilation? Yes, absolutely. Very good question. And I really want uh, your listeners to understand how important is to recognize the difference between ventilation and oxygen supply. 
So what is happening with the patient when they have respiratory issues? There can be a different type of, type of issues. And sometimes you can treat by just having that extra oxygen flow. And it can be applied through the simple nasal cannula, which is very comfortable, or some simple mask that is not tied to your face. And it's also very comfortable. If you uh, know pa uh, patients or uh, anyone who's using simple CPAP machine at home, so this is something that already helping with a little bit of ventilation because it's giving you that better flow with a little bit of pressure of, of the air. So when we talk about ventilation, it's not just delivering the oxygen, but we actually delivering the pressure into your lungs that helps these lungs to open up and stay open when you exhale. What it does, it helps the lung to heal. And at the same time, it helps that gas exchange to happen in on a bigger surface. So when I say ventilation, that means that you have to have that mask that which is non-invasive type of ventilation or helmet. So with the face mask, you have to have it very tight to your face. It has to have almost perfect seal around your face, your nose and your mouth. So cover your nose and your mouth. So that pressure can actually be delivered to the lungs and there should be none to minimum leaks, air leaks around the mask. With the helmet, what is happening, you create the same seal, but it's not around your face. It's actually around your neck. So it feels a little bit like a turtleneck. There is no pressure on your neck. It's just that seals, that nice uh, membrane, uh, the opening of the helmet actually seals around the neck, which is much easier to contain without the leaks. Now, when we talk about different faces, about different sizes, uh, about different uh, contours of your face, and just the structure of your skin, it is very important when you're using a face mask. And the reason why is because some patients, and especially older population, have missing teeth. So it automatically changes your face. And to put the face mask on this uh, type of patient is gonna be harder to maintain that leak-free therapy. What then, if we have patients also who had some facial traumas in the past. So again, this is where uh, we have to remember that Device is made for the perfect face, but we don't, we don't have perfect faces in our communities. So this is where the helmet actually will be perfect for these patients because you don't have to worry about any facial trauma, about any missing teeth, about any like skin uh, breakdowns that patients sometimes have or injuries because it will not cause any pain for the patient when we use the helmet. I think you're raising a couple of really important questions. The first is, you know, the kind of silliness of the perfect face. 
I would imagine that the idea of the perfect face is not only something that doesn't really exist uh, outside of some sort of technological uh, laboratory, but also that it may be influenced and reliant upon certain perceptions about what constitutes a perfect face that might be tinged with, for example, uh, concepts of uh, race racial bias, maybe gender bias. Um, we know that in so many of our technologies, both within medicine and outside of medicine, certain assumptions about uh, what a, or a standard body is are predicated on you know, what, a, what a white male, a normal white male looks like. Uh, hence the design of passenger and driver seats in cars designed for a standard white male body that leave uh, women who drive those cars who are portion slightly differently at higher risk of dying uh, in a car accident. Hence, um, medical standards for something like a BMI that are predicated on white male bodies that indicate to women who have naturally higher body fat that they are obese when they are in fact uh, just women uh, who have naturally different body mass indexes. So what you're saying here, I think, evokes for me the significance and the consequences of thinking in technological terms in terms of standardizations without an awareness of the long history of how standardizations may actually have certain dimensions of biases and prejudices that might actually be consequentially detrimental to patients. Yeah, and I totally hear you because in the pharmaceutical industry, as you know, uh, a lot of medications and their dosage is based on a specific group of patients. So with non-invasive ventilation, what I see that the, the masks are created for that perfect face, unfortunately. It is very sad when we see patients who are getting invasive ventilation where they have, to, where, where physicians will put the tube, breathing tube in their mouth and, and then they have to be sedated be in a medical coma and, you know, wait until they get better. So just imagine now in the US, in all these ICUs that we have patients on a ventilator, 30% of them should not be if they used helmet. So now is the question, why are we not using it in US? Why is we getting this uh, innovation, this interface so late? Because it's been used over 20 years in Europe, mostly in Italy, but also in UK. And when I talk with my colleagues uh, from Europe, they, they know that device very well. And they say, yeah, we use it most of the time in some hospitals, more than face masks. And again, I don't want to say that stop using the face mask. There will be always a perfect patient for the face mask, and there will be a perfect patient for the helmet. It just to have that extra, extra choice in your toolbox that you can apply to for that patient at that moment, and that can save patient's life. Well, let me ask a question to follow up. You say, you know, you you ask the question, why do we have this? invention, this technology coming to the United States so late. What's the answer to that? Well, there was issue. We didn't have the helmet approved by FDA until the COVID came. So when the pandemic started, FDA gave uh, EUA authorization for the helmets. And there are now two helmets in US that are made in Italy. And these helmets were developed by 
medical engineers in for the last 20 years. So we definitely got the best features that you can find in a helmet. And uh, they are available now in US. I just don't see that uh, they're being used a lot. And uh, I still hear a lot of a lot of skepticism, a lot of questions about the helmets from uh, clinicians who didn't even took time to learn about the device and who made uh, some conclusions based on their assumptions. What questions do they have? Well, usually is very simple question. Will patient have higher claustrophobia? Because it is a plastic back over your head. Actually, the data says that they will have less claustrophobia than using a face mask. And the very main reason, the simple reason why is because helmet, it's a interface, which there is nothing that will touch patient's face. So you imagine you have something that is a, uh, with a face mask, there's something that is occluding your nose and your mouth, and it's pressing on your face versus something that doesn't touch your face at all, doesn't obstruct your view. You can read a book, you can actually wear your glasses and uh, stay more independent when you're in a hospital. With the face mask, you can do any of those things. Also with the helmet, it's so easy to have uh, oral fluids. Let's say a patient he needs to take a sip of water. We can have it, we can learn how to do, make, uh, have a sip of water without having a nurse at the bedside. So again, this is why we're going to reduce the workflow for the nurses, because uh, we're giving a uh, patient the support that we need through the helmet with the helmet interface, but at the same time, we stay more independent and we can uh, take a sip of water when we want to. Uh, or, you know, suction their mouth or cough because there will be no obstruction when we're coughing. Because again, the helmet, there's, it's, your head is free. <laughs> Nothing is touching your head. It's just, a, like I said, very uh, soft seal around your ne neck that actually helps to keep that pressure inside the helmet and in your lungs. Maybe we should go back and define some terms before we go any, any further. I know you talked uh, at the beginning about ventilation uh, in the medical context, but I'm wondering if you can give us a kind of uh, pithy, precise uh, definition of ventilation. What is ventilation in the medical context? Can you describe it? Can you help us visualize what it looks like? Can you help us understand why uh, the question of how to ventilate is such an important medical question? Why we should care uh, about it? Why you're spending your career looking at this alternative way to ventilate patients? Just imagine you take your breath in and out. You don't even think about it. You do it through the whole your life without controlling that. And what is happening when you get sick, uh, usually there is some type of inflammation in your lungs. And you know, inflammation, that means it's something is swollen and something is, uh, that the process is interrupted, the natural process in that area. So what happens with the lung, when lung is inflamed, when you exhale, your part of the lung cells will collapse. And this way, you're gonna lose that lung volume. 
you will have less lung to breathe. And the patients will start to breathe then faster to compensate that loss. So with the ventilation, what we are doing, we're actually helping to keep that lung open because we're delivering that pressure in this way, by keeping that lung open, you're actually helping that patient to reduce that respiratory rate, to breathe slower, closer to normal rate that we do on a regular basis. Why do we want patients to breathe slower? Because you're using less energy. You are not getting exhausted. Patients who are struggling to, to breathe, they look like they're running a marathon. And now is the question, how long can you run that marathon? So the non-invasive ventilation is not much about treating, but it's about giving that extra time for this patient to heal by these other interventions to start to work. It can be antibiotics that will start to work in 24 hours. It can be antiviral medications or steroids or some medications or therapies that will help that lung finally to heal. So during that time, that waiting time, we're doing everything what's possible to keep the patient awake, to keep the patient alert and make sure that we don't put him on a mechanical ventilation, which is very invasive, painful uh, and complications that can be caused by invasive ventilation is a long list. So this is why ventilation is more about helping to take that breath and not to breathe too fast. What your overview of ventilation brings up for me is that there are important questions that we should ask, not just about uh, ventilation, but about technological innovations, broadly speaking, when we consider which technologies to adapt uh, in the context of care. So I wanted to ask that question to you, taking what you know about ventilation and taking what you know about you know, how the particular dimensions of technological innovation interact with care, um, how do we think about the ethics of of uh, adopting certain innovations? And how do we think about the kinds of considerations we might take into account when we think about which technologies to adapt in the context of care? Uh, one thing rise up in my mind when you say about ethics, you know, remembering my bedside practice in an ICU, we have very, a lot of patients who end up deciding to have a comfort care. So that means where they are not, they are not willing to be put it on that mechanical ventilation. They don't want to have a tube in the mouth. What they want to, they want it to be pain-free. They want to feel comfortable and have family around them for maybe for some, in some cases, it can be last hours or last days or weeks. We never know. But uh, for this patient population, I feel like we don't have very many options. And that one option is actually the face mask that we have, which is very painful. When you put the face mask and you keep it for more than 24 hours, you start to develop all the skin breakdowns around the nose bridge, on your cheeks. And uh, it is uh, painful, not just for the patient, but also for us, the caregivers and the family members to watch the patient in the pain. 
so technology that I'm promoting and I'm bringing awareness of, uh, about the helmet actually allows these patients to escape from that unnecessary pain and also don't feel that shortness of breath, don't uh, struggle breathing and have normal uh, conversation with their family members, see their, you know, to see their uh, grandkids and hug them. Or, uh, you know, it's just, I'm just talking from my experience, from cases that I see on a, so on daily basis. There is already like data out there and uh, studies that actually show how helmet interface uh, helps uh, for patients who decided not to be intubated. And in some cases, we got even better after using it and we are able to go back home. When we talk about ethics, this is what I feel so strong about when I talk about patients who are spending their last moments of their life. And I want to make sure that their quality of life, even the last minutes and hours and weeks are the best. And we can do that. I, I truly believe we can do that. You know, it's interesting. My mom is an intensive care doctor. She works at Oakland Children's Hospital, and she's devoted the last de decades of her career to palliative care. Um, so this is, I think, a question that I see play out uh, quite frequently when I hear her stories or when I go visit her uh, at the hospital, which is on the one hand, you know, intensive care, the moments that you're talking about are really critical moments. They're potentially life-saving moments. You're uh, encountering people in moments where a technological innovation could change uh, the course of the trajectory of you know th their recovery or pivot them in into a downward spiral that leads to their death. You are dealing with people who are at a critical uh, moment where really the imperative is just to try and save their life on a very basic level. You know, so so on on that hand, it is about essentially triage, maybe some discomfort or maybe some pain or maybe um, something that is not optimal in terms of quality of life is worth it if it saves somebody's life or, or prolongs it in a meaningful way. On the other hand, you're also dealing with people who are in the most traumatic moment of their life, potentially. And there's another, I think, oftentimes competing imperative, which is don't make it worse, right? If it truly is in this traumatic moment in somebody's life, then there's an imperative to not make it more painful. And so I think that there's a, there's a very tough line that this particular kind of technology or these particular this particular arena of technology has to navigate between on the one hand saying, you know, uh, if we have to break a few eggs to make that omelet, that is to say, if we have to cause a certain amount of discomfort or pain in order to save somebody's life, then we have to do it. And on the other hand, uh, this idea that somebody is truly in uh, the worst moments of their life, we have to be gentle. We have to care for them in a way that does not make it worse. How do you navigate that kind of question as a caregiver? We usually have, we have a meeting with a lot of experts in that field. So that, and also family member and a patient, it depends how, how much patient is aware of the situation. And these uh, meetings are very tough on all of us. I can say every case is very different. And you think, oh, after so many years of experience, I will know the answer. You never know. 
And you have to kind of stop yourself from assuming what's going to be the uh, consequences you, or you know, the, what decision will be made. You always wanted to listen, be attentive and actually know the patient very well. Because sometimes I noticed that a lot of family members wanted to do everything what's possible, but the patient expressed themselves that they, they just uh, are okay with what they have and they made that decision and they just wanted to be in peace. So that's very, very hard <laughs> cases that we have to be, you know, that we have to be a part of as clinicians. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. But again, my main focus was always to make sure that my patient is feeling as comfortable, comfortable as possible to make sure that the patient has family member in, at the bedside. And I really like that new rule that we have at University of Chicago, but also I believe new old rule that we have is that the, the visitors can stay 24 seven with the patient. And that's, uh, I think it's uh, very important, not just for the patient, but also for us, because that's how we sometimes learn so much about the patient that we care for. Every decision about end of life or about the palliative care, comfort care, or full care is that decision to make is really tough. And it takes a lot of opinions, a lot of people, a lot of different experts to be involved. So my short answer is I cannot say that you can learn that and deal with that the same with every case. It's just Every time is a different story. Every time is something different. So you, you have to be just very present, respect the patient, and try to know better the patient and the family, what they would like to do. But now let me pivot it a little bit, because uh, in addition to thinking about caregiving from the perspective of being there with the patient, you're thinking about it in the context of designing technologies that do this. And I would imagine that if you're designing a technology, you have to optimize sometimes for either the intervention maybe being more painful, but more maybe more effective at times. And sometimes you say, you know, it, it doesn't matter if we can make it slightly more effective. If it's going to cause this dimension of pain for patients, then we compromise effectiveness potentially for comfort. Do you think that in the terms of technological design, that these questions come up? And if so, how do you navigate them in the context of technological production or technological uh, ideation? So yeah, definitely. If uh, the patient who needs respiratory support, we always try to do to find the best interface that we can use to relieve any shortness of breath. But at the same time, we use uh, some medications, morphine, uh, that helps the patient to, to feel comfortable. Another technology that I can, can mention too, that really helps uh, in palliative care uh, is uh, like some even IV pumps. That means the, the delivery system for the medication, the continuous delivery system for some type of medication that can go with the patient home. So we always think, what would be the best place for this patient to, to spend his last days? And if we can find something, and actually I wish we could invent more of the technology that will allow the patient to go safely home and uh, spend the last moments of his life or her life at home, and at the same time cover all the 
possible issues that can cause pain or discomfort, that would be amazing. I wish I could <laughs> tell you more about, but uh, most of our patients in the ICU end up spending their last hours in, in the unit or in a hospital because we have those limitations. I know that you worked on bringing awareness to and popularizing knowledge and an understanding of the importance of ventilation technology and more specifically helmet-based non-invasive ventilation technology in one particular context, which is the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, which provided a new urgency to the need for ventilation and new questions about ventilation. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what COVID-19 changed about ventilation or you're thinking about ventilation or the medical community's thinking about ventilation on the one hand, specifically, and then about care more broadly? Very good question, because a lot of things we know happen uh, when the pandemic hit the world and not just in the medical community, but outside that also where people are working from homes now, right? Well, in uh, the time when the uh, COVID was uh, already in uh, in Italy and uh, in New York. I don't know if you remember all these pictures with, you know, a lot of people uh, dying and uh, everybody is waiting in the line to get oxygen. What uh, was happening in the news, we, we, we were always hearing about the ventilators. We need more ventilators. So I think it's natural response to that in a stress situation where you think, okay, we will have more ventilators. That means we can intubate or like I say, connect the patient to that mechanical ventilation and we will save more lives. But we medical community, we understand that to manage a patient on a mechanical ventilation takes a lot of resources. There's uh, medications that run 24 seven that need to sedate the patient that I was mentioning before about the medical coma so they feel comfortable in the ventilator. So they don't fight that machine so we can give them that more time for the other therapies to work. Also, it takes experts on the ventilation and also the nurses and physicians to take care of that patient. At the same time, COVID patients who were on the ventilator were extremely sick, so they required all the other therapies on top of it. They needed to be always change the position from uh, flipping back them on the stomach and then on the back. So you imagine it takes at least five, six people to flip the patient on the belly and back. So when you talk about the ventilator, you have to think how much more resources you need for that one ventilated patient. So at that moment, I, I was really very uh, loud to say the ventilators will not help us because we don't have enough resources to take care of these patients. We will have more medical mistakes happening because you don't have a person who is qualified to take care of this patient to, who's, to take care of that patient. So that's why I said from a day one to talk about non-invasive ventilation, because it's easy to apply anywhere. It can be applied in an ambulance. It can be applied in an ER, in a regular step-down units. Where you have an oxygen source, it can be used. And why I talked about the helmet, because helmet, again, you don't have to find that perfect face for the interface. For helmet, 
you just have to have a neck, right? <laughs> and that's going to fit any size of a head, any shape of your face. That's going to fit every patient. At the same time, we were all concerned about, about the virus spreading in a community, spreading around to the other patients in a hospital. That's was, that was another reason why a lot of patients end up on a ventilator because you can control that spread. So that air that you exhale, you can filter out when you connect it to the machine. With the face mask, it's very hard because as I mentioned, there are a lot of leaks around your face. Well, with the helmet, there are practically zero to minimum leaks that can happen around the neck. So what you do, you just put the filter on an expiratory site and this air is filtered out from the pathogen, in this case, COVID-19. So this way you can protect your staff, your nurses, you know, your support staff that have to take care of this patient. This is why in 2020 March, I created the website helmetbasedventilation.com where I started to put all the information that I knew at that time about helmets, to put all the protocols that have been used in Italy especially, and how to use it, and then at the same time, uh, talk with manufacturers and educate others about it. So that, that was a big change for me. But also what I noticed in the world, and uh, it's, it's uh, terrifying. We only during the COVID pandemic, we kind of learned, which I, we have to be ashamed of, that we learned only in 2020, that a lot of countries have no access to medical oxygen. When you see uh, people in Honduras or in Chile, that uh, they are selling everything what we have so we can buy a balloon of oxygen on a black market. That is terrifying. I spent a lot uh, on calls on Every Breath Counts Coalition that was led by Leaf Greenslade. She is amazing. She started that during COVID and it still continued. The, the goal is to actually make sure that every human being on this earth has access to oxygen. So what are or what have been the ethical issues around ventilation? What are the major ones for you? And why should we care about those ethical issues beyond the COVID-19 pandemic? I can name a few, and it's maybe going to be a more like a summary of everything that I talked today. So one of them is the biggest one, and it's a global one, access to oxygen. It's the same like access to clean water, right? Why are we still having these issues? Why some of us don't even know that we have these issues? So definitely we want to make sure that anyone everywhere has this um, opportunity to, to heal and to get the best care that we can. And oxygen, supplemental oxygen is such a basic thing that in the US in every hospital you can get it. There will be no issue on getting oxygen here or in any European country. But there are so many uh, low and middle income countries that don't have that. Another thing, the ventilation, again, I mentioned ventilation is uh, the access to the ventilation is not the same in different countries. In US, I still feel like uh, our patients, our 
family members, when we come to the hospital and we know that there is a helmet interface that probably will fit needs the best, is FDA approved, but it's not in this hospital just because the team didn't adopt this new and proven technology. That's an ethical issue. Why should I choose a hospital that has a helmet that can give me that extra days or weeks where I can heal without uh, getting connected to the mechanical ventilation? But maybe I don't have insurance that can that I can use for this hospital. And I can say that I lived in my bubble. I worked at University of Chicago hospitals. And we get all the best technology, all the experts there. But what I learned during the COVID that not all the hospitals are University of Chicago. And again, this is very sad that some hospitals probably even have a helmet on a shelf, but we don't using on a patient because we don't know how, or we have, or we made those uh, assumptions that it's not gonna work without even trying to learn about it. And I can say it's very easy device to use, but for every device, there is a learning curve and you need to educate. It's nothing, I didn't say anything new, but I wanna see more and more patients receiving helmet-based ventilation that probably will help to avoid the complications that are caused by the invasive mechanical ventilations. And I think you're bringing up a lot of issues here. You know, uh, COVID-19 probably exacerbated longstanding structural issues in the context of medical care and hospitalization that we could see for the first time in a more pronounced ways. For instance, unequal access to healthcare. Well, in the context of the pandemic, when you have a disease that, you know, everybody is suddenly susceptible to questions of who has access to what kind of care and how that care is so vitally tied to outcomes and the uh, relative uneven distribution of that kind of care and access to that care probably surfaced some longstanding structural issues and made them more visible to most of us for the first time. Um, I remember and I, I recall very strongly uh, in the earlier days of the pandemic in the United States, moments where people were dying because there were just not enough ventilators or certain chief executives in the presidential administration were threatening to withdraw a ventilation distribution from certain states if those states didn't adhere to certain political programs. So we really saw, I think, in um, a large scale way, something deeply structural that we already know to be true, which is that access to healthcare is uneven and that access to healthcare, particularly for vulnerable or underrepresented populations or populations who have historically not had economic agency are made more vulnerable um, in the context of healthcare. And so I wonder whether we could think about the questions that you're raising here about ventilation as almost a kind of, I don't know, um, metaphor for, or maybe a, a small scale representation of the larger structural issues uh, across the medical community uh, and across a kind of American healthcare system in which uh, access is uneven, in which um, 
technological products may provide new innovative ways of intervening into medical processes uh, or medical urgencies, but the kind of disjointed nature of the system renders those technologies either unusable or obsolete when the teams that need to deploy them don't know how to do that, or when the system kind of doesn't come together to close a loop in the way that it would need to do in order to actually provide and facilitate the care that the technologies enable. Yes, it's, it is. And uh, it's, it's good you mentioned, you know, uh, government and where do we spend money? In US, in the ICU, you can spend a lot of money on a lot of technology. To stay in the ICU is very expensive. I have a question, why don't we focus on some devices, in this case is helmet interface, that actually can save about 450 million US dollar per year if it's used instead of face mask. And that data is very old, that's from 2016. Why don't we use something that can save us money, save us resources, save us uh, medications that will cost the patient less? Why, why are we so slow to adapt this type of technology? Well, we'll answer your own question. Why? Why are we so slow to do that? What, what's the answer to that question? What's, what's your theory? You know, I'm, I'm looking at this issue through and trying to be very patient. And I'm not saying that medical community or doctors and nurses or respiratory therapists are bad people. No, definitely not. But uh, I'm looking actually at the history, how that whole technology was developing, especially when I talk about the ventilation. And I can tell you that uh, actually in, back in 1950s, when there was a polio outbreak, this is the, was the time when the invasive ventilation, mechanical ventilation, started to be used so much and so wide. And that was the time when that non-invasive ventilation stopped to developing. And only now, I could say in about uh, 1990s, approximately, we, we went back to that technology, non-invasive ventilation, uh, because we saw how much, you know, that uh, invasive ventilation is not always the answer. So we can say that the development of that non-invasive ventilation of uh, the whole medical engineering in that field started to improve only in 1990s. But at the same time, the adaptation by the medical community is also a very long process. And we know there are a lot of brick walls in this whole process. You know, the hospital administration is the budget, is the education, how much resources we have to do that. So. So everything that is happening in medical community, any new innovations, any new devices to adapt, it takes time. But now we live in a different times where we can learn from AI, <laughs> where we can learn uh, by just having a Zoom call, where we have all these simulation labs where you can learn, right? So I feel that we should be able to shorten that learning curve get confident on using something new and actually start to apply in practice. I think you're saying something very important as well about that we can learn from the history of ventilation about how important it is to 
understand how particular historical moments and particular decisions set technological innovations upon uh, along a certain trajectory that once embarked upon is very hard to change. It seems to me like the kind of it, at the inception of the technology around ventilation, there was a premise and the premise is that it needs to be I- I- invasive, that it as an intervention, it, it should be painful or that there is no way to make it not painful. And once you accept those premises as the premises of your technological product, then it's very hard to change course and you know question that premise from its uh, very origins and from its foundations to say, well, actually, does it need to be invasive? Does it need to be painful? And we see that you know from from your uh, history of thinking about this technology, it takes forty years for people to ask that question of the technology. So. What I take from this is that it's very important to think about the kind of values that a technology ought to embody and to question those premises from the very beginning uh, and to think about how a technology needs to interact with and serve a variety of different values. Because I think, as you point out, once those premises are established, it's very hard for anybody to effectively challenge them. Exactly. And I just want to mention uh, why Italy is using helmet-based ventilation so much. The reason why was because they didn't have enough budget for the ICUs back in 90s. And this is where the physicians started to explore more the non-invasive ventilation. And this is where they actually used the first helmet that made in U.S. for the hyperbaric medicine. They used the first helmet for the patients that were in the ambulance, and they noticed that way, way much easier to, for the operator to, uh, to manage this and also for the patient to, to use it too and to tolerate that. So again, there were so many different historical events that made one country so much advanced in this technology than other countries catching up only now. because. Uh, Helmet-based ventilation was created, .com was created mostly for the American population. I also noticed that uh, I got a lot of attention from other countries, a lot of visitors and questions. So I want to mention Brazil, actually. Brazil were so quick to adapt the helmet-based uh, ventilation. And the main reason was because sometimes to transfer a patient to the hospital, it will take them four hours. So you imagine that patient in an ambulance who needed to have uh, ventilatory support to be on a face mask for four hours can be very challenging. And also for other reasons, everybody was afraid of the virus to spread out in that small ambulance. So they used the helmet and they like it and they really adapted very well and they still using for the patients. So again, yeah, it's like different location, different time changed the trajectory of innovation of uh, new medical applications. Well, uh, to follow up on that, what do you think the legacy of COVID-19 and that uh, experience and that event will be for the medical community? How will that change the ethics of care or the uh, the way that the medical community thinks about care? So I think that definitely non-invasive ventilation got a lot of attention because of COVID. When people look back at, at the statistics, how many patients uh, died on a ventilator, it was terrifying. So this is why now I can see more studies coming up 
with different interfaces and they comparing and they trying to find like what works the best for, for what type of patient population. So I hope that we got that uh, spike in a, in a uh, awareness and adaptation of non-invasive ventilation. And no matter what type, it can be face mask, helmet, or high-flow nasal cannula, which is uh, questionable if it's a ventilation. But still, there are so many other devices that got the light on and, and started to be used in these hospitals. So I feel like that's going to help us a lot. And uh, very important to remember that these devices that I'm mentioning, it's not just for COVID. Again, it's been used before COVID and it's going to be used after COVID for different type of patients. So now it's the most important thing is how can you find that perfect device for that individual? So we want, we don't want to use the you know cookie cutter sometimes in the medical care i feel like that's going to change with also the new technology out there with all these studies that are there and on all these findings about the mechanical ventilation and how to use it safely so again i don't want to say that the mechanical ventilation is bad for some patients you have to connect them to the ventilator there is no other ways to help them but now we'll learn from all the studies about COVID and ventilation and, uh, um, and invasive ventilation, we're finding out what settings are much better for these patients. I think we have time for one final question. And whatever I talk to individual interlocutors on this show about, I, I always care to pivot the conversation around the essential questions of technological thought and uh, technological production and human values. So I want to ask you, in the context of our conversation, how can technological thinking and production better serve human values in the context of medicine and care? What should innovators and technologists be thinking about when it comes to the ethics of medicine and care? I think the answer is simple. It should be individualized. The medical care should fit that person that particular problem that patient has. And we have to look at the patient as a whole. And I think the one of the new things that's going to be used in the, in the medicine, uh, and I hope it's going to happen, it's going to be artificial intelligence, where we can get protocol for every patient that is very much will fit their needs and improve the outcomes. Because we have so much data, uh, we just have to wait to make sure that this data is in a system and we can share. And actually, I believe we, uh, the clinicians, we're gonna learn so much more too. Sometimes learning can be a painful process, uh, not just for the clinician, but for the patient too, unfortunately. So hopefully we will have those painful and unsuccessful out outcome rates much lower when we have the new technology helping us to make these decisions and actually to prevent any medical errors. That's kind of broad answer to your question because most of the time I talked about helmets, but I really passionate about 
the new technology and AI. And I know some already is used to alert the physicians when there is something wrong with the patient and his breathing or her breathing when we connect it to the ventilator. And I know it's happening in Lithuania. That's where I'm from. Uh, so it's, uh, it's exciting. It is really times that we live now. Uh, we will see so much innovation and I hope only good ones. Thank you so much, Arika. Thank you, Deb.